Hello, and welcome to our continued series on the book of Psalms. We're doing an in-depth study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to be looking at 12 chapters at a time, uh, going through the whole of the book. I'm so honored that you would take the time to join us. It shows to me that you're hungry for the word of the Lord, that you are desiring to hear something from heaven, something from God for your life. So we're going to get right into the series, and we're in chapter 8 today. I want us to pray first, then I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're going to break it down and see some really good things for your life today, how God uses small things. There's, uh, I've been working on some titles for this one, and it's kind of got me floundering here a little bit. I have one title that says, God Loves Using Small Things, or the other one title is called Babies Versus Avengers, and I'll let you choose which one you want to use. But God, we thank you now for speaking to us through your word today, and I ask for grace as a messenger, as a messenger of the gospel, Lord Jesus, that I'd be faithful to you, and that I would be faithful to your word, and that I would be faithful to the people that would take the time to come and hear the word of the Lord, that they would not hear light and fluffy and trite things, that they would hear things that would uh, bring honor and glory to your name and transformation to their life and joy to their heart. And I give thanks for this because you're a good God and you do great things in Jesus' name, amen. Before I read Psalm chapter eight, just wanna go back and review a little bit. The first seven chapters that we've been looking at over the past few weeks and months has described to us the anguish of heart that David found himself in, oftentimes trials and tribulations, sorrows and sufferings. And he was dealing with issues of sin in his own life. He was dealing with issues of sickness in his own body, suffering from persecution and adversaries all around him. Uh, Oftentimes, even from his own family, he was going through almost every type of crisis that you or I could ever go through. It's a great book. These first seven chapters are great chapters to read if you are in a place in your life right now where maybe you're going through a marriage difficulty, a financial situation, uh, a prognosis from a doctor that is, is causing alarm into your heart and into your mind. David takes these psalms, and he's been, in this, he's been in this place of both external troubles all around him, his enemies surrounding him, and he's also f- facing internal battles, doubt and fear and unbelief, asking questions like, how long, oh Lord, how long? Can you relate to these? I certainly can. We can relate to the heart of David, and it was a heart after God. So if he had a heart after God and he was saying these things, and you're saying those things, and sometimes the enemy would attack you and say, look at you, look how little faith you have, look how unbelieving you are, look at the doubt that's arisen in your heart, you can know that you are parallel with a man who has a heart after God, who God was pleased with this heart that sought after him, this heart that loved to go into the presence of God. I'm glad you have that. And I believe that's why you're here today, listening to this message, because you want more of this hungry heart for God. In these first seven chapters, we uh, also see a pattern develop here in in the heart cry of this man after God's own heart. We, We see almost every psalm starts with David expressing to the Lord the troubles. It's almost like he woke up in the morning feeling downcast again. He asks this later in the psalms, why so downcast Oh, my soul, put your trust in God. And he repeats that theme several times in the same chapter and other chapters as well. Why so downcast, oh, my soul? And so it almost appears that he's waking up in the morning having to reface the battles again. Maybe through the night he's had dreams or even nightmares, rehearsing the difficulties, maybe a sleepless night, and he was troubled. He even says that in one of these psalms here that we've already studied, that his his bed was like a a pool of tears uh, because he had cried himself to almost asleep, or cried himself uh, all, all night long in tears. And so we see here, he, he, he's asking these questions like in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine vain things? In Psalm 3, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Psalm 4, answer me when I call of God. Give me relief from my distress. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, oh Lord. Uh, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, Psalm 6, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious for me, because I am languishing. Heal me. I am greatly troubled. And then in Psalm 7, he continues the theme. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers. And so the, the appearance you get is that he starts his conversation with God in a negative state of mind and emotion. Many of us are facing that same thing. We're going through a battle in our life. 
and, and it's hard to come to the Lord with a song in our heart, with a, with a joy in our heart. We, we know it's deep down in there, but the expression of it is covered, almost hidden with the trials and tribulations of life. So he's starting off with, these, with this almost uh, ne- negative view of the world and circumstances around him. But as he begins to think about the trouble that he's in, and maybe there's something towards his mind, but I remember the trouble I've also gotten out of. I remember the rescue times. I remember the deliverance time. And, and many of these psalms he begins to speak about. And I know you're going to be there. Deliver me, Lord. How long will it be? But yet you'll deliver me. And before long, you find him almost at the end of every psalm. He's, he's doing this, saying like in Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 3, the last verse, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Uh, Psalm 4, in peace I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 5, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. That's such good news. Psalm 6, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall be turned back and put to shame. And then in Psalm 7, it's almost he puts the capstone Seven being the complete number of, of, the, of perfection in the Hebrew writings. And so at the end of the seventh cry of his heart, the seventh trial, so to speak, that he's been through, the seventh time he's rehearsed the same patterns of problems over and over again and over again in his life, but he keeps that cry uh, and he keeps turning it into a praise. And I pray that these messages over this past few months have been something like that to you, taking your cry and turning it into a praise, taking, taking your downcast uh, depressed, uh, diminished spirit and soul and raising it up to a place of praise and adoration and thanksgiving and hope and confidence and glorying and the fact that God is fighting your battles for you. So at the end of Psalm 7, he puts a, the capstone on all of these seven chapters, I believe, and he says, I will give thanks to the Lord, do his righteousness. In other words, I see this is due him now. We talked about that last week. This is, this is, this is something that is owed to him because... All my ups and downs, he's been there for me. He's been there with me. Nothing have I had to face alone and never have my enemies triumphed over me, but you've always triumphed over my enemies. And so he says, that's the reason. You're right in what you do, God. You're right in allowing some of these difficulties because of what it did in my soul. Later on in one of the Psalms, he he says, if I had not known this discipline of the Lord, then, then I wouldn't have turned. And so there's some good things happening even in the difficulties in our lives. But he says, uh, uh, I'll give you thanks. And then he concludes that chapter. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High, the Most High. My problems aren't most high. My soul is not most high. My dilemmas are not most high. My emotions are not most high. My feelings of uh, my situations and circumstances. None of those things are the most high. There's one thing that's the most high, and that's God Almighty, most high over above all things. Now, as soon as David resolves that in his heart, and I would say the same for us, as soon as we resolve that in our heart, this is a fact. This is a sure foundation. This is a shield about me. This is something that is a promise to me, that God is a God most high over all circumstances, all emotions, all problems, all difficulties. In him I put my hope. And when you get to that place, it brings a song of praise. Whether your circumstances change or not, there's a song of praise in your heart. And then that releases him to a different type of psalm. You see a very radical shift now in Psalms 8. It's the first psalms where he doesn't start off describing a problem that he's facing in his life, but instead now he's beginning to describe the glory, the honor, the majesty, the splendor, the power, the wonder of God. You see, he's getting a high view of God now. Maybe before, like us, we have a high view of our problems and we hope God will rise to the occasion. But time after time, God has proven himself, shown himself strong, shown himself powerful, shown himself the victor, shown himself the overcomer. And by doing so now, our problems seem smaller and God is bigger. He doesn't seem bigger. He, 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 he is bigger. He's bigger than we could think, bigger than we can imagine. His omnipotence is far beyond our finite mind to understand the infinite power that he has. And that power is at work in your life and in mine. That leads us to Psalm 8, a powerful psalm, and it's a psalm of rejoicing. It's a psalm of a man who has finally come to terms with the fact that I know I serve a God who always triumphs, and I want us to be able to sing this song with, with David. I want him to, us to be able to have this be a, a song in our heart, uh, whether you sing it musically or just the lyrics 
are rehearsing in your mind over and over again. But listen to this. And, and if it's not a song to you, make it a prayer to you then. Make it a worship. Verse 1. Um, first, it starts with an introduction to the choir master, according to the Githath, a psalm of David. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength uh, of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. But when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care, lovely word, that you care for him. Verse five, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say the angels. You have crowned him yet. He's lower than the angels, but yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. It's a different crown than the angels have. It's the crown of the image of God, the crown of righteousness that we have, the, the, the free will within us that God has orchestrated through his redemptive power of taking that will and imposing upon it his own grace and power to make us righteous when we weren't righteous in our own strength. Hallelujah, that's such good news. And, and, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put uh, all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas. Whatever passes along the path of the seas. Oh, and then look at this, verse 9, he repeats verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You can tell what David's thinking. He's thinking about the majesty of the Lord, the splendor of the Lord, that, that he's above all things. Now, there's, a, there's some writings in ancient times called the Jewish Midrash. And in the Midrash, it was not the scriptures that we have, but it was the way that the Jewish rabbis began to teach their students, their disciples, about the scriptures. And they have uh, labeled chapter 8 as the, in, the, in the Midrash as the 12 questions. I think that's kind of interesting that, that they, they label all of this because it almost seems too good to be true. Maybe, maybe these aren't declarations. Maybe these are questions. Now, of course, I believe they are declarations, but, but when you form them in a question, it begins to show how majestic it is what God has done in your life and mine. Sometimes we think ourselves insignificant. Sometimes we think ourselves powerless, but God has endued you with power from on high. He has given you grace. He's given you gifts. He's given you skills. He's given you relationships. He's given you resources in order for you to uh, move along with him. But in this Midrash, let me read these. It's almost like rehearsing the chapter we just read, but in question form. And some of these are actually questions. Number one, what is, my, what is man that you are mindful of him? Number two, and, all this, and the son of man that you remember him? Number three, that you made him less uh, only than God? Number four, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Interesting kind of forming that in a way of question. You, you did that? I, I can just see that, that sense of, of uh, this seems too good to be true. Uh, you, you did that for us? You crowned us with glory? Uh, and, and you covered us with glory and honor? Uh, five, you gave us dominion over the works of your hands? These, these are your hands that did these things, and you're asking us to have dominion over them? How can this this be, and you put all things beneath our feet, that, that, that's astounding to us, that's overwhelming. And then he begins to ask these certain things, the, the, the sheep here in front of me, are, are they part of all this under my dominion, all, all of them? That's what scripture says, all the sheep, all, all the animals, are, uh, all, all the beasts of the fields, all the birds that fly in, in the sky, all the fish underneath the sea, and traverses the ways of the seas, in other words, the, all, we have dominion over all those, like the whales, and it's, it's hard to fathom. And the last one, uh, oh Lord, how glorious is your name in the earth? How glorious is it? Tell us. Uh, I love that in question form. How glorious is it? It's beyond finding out. It's, it's infathomable. It's, it's, it's indescribable. It's immeasurable. His, his, his majesty is, is far beyond what we could think or imagine. And sometimes we put God in such a small box uh, we close them in and say, you can do this, but not that, or you did this, but you won't do that, or you're here for me, but you're not there for me. And, and, and we begin to have a diminished view of God. In my pastoral ministry and in my Bible teaching ministry, the great 
call on my life, the call of God that has, has burned within my soul and my spirit is to make God big. Not, and, and I say that the wrong way almost every time because we can't really make him big, but, but to be able to see him as big as he is, I describe it as turning the, the telescope around the right way. If you've ever looked through the telescope, uh, through the wrong end, end of the lens, what you look at is actually diminished and smaller than what it really is. That you turn it around the right way and you begin to see some small portion of the reality of its size. Look through the moon in a telescope and the moon is much larger. But if you're walking on the face of the moon, it's larger yet. And so even all that we see through scripture, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is, is still us seeing God through that finite lens of our human capacity to understand. And so David is getting a glimpse of this through all that he's been through. Interesting, it was his suffering, his difficulty, and God triumphing over all that in circumstance and in his emotions and in his heart that gave him the ability to say this, to start and finish this chapter. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is thy name. And to answer these 12 questions that the, the, the rabbis would ask, David would answer them with an affirmative, of course, of course this is what God does. Certainly this is what God does. He's proven himself over and over again. And it, it's, it's, it's it, this verse one and verse nine are these bookends to God showing his majesty and what he's doing in our life. And this majesty is so great, it says in verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then secondly, it says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Now, if you go to the end of the heavens, so to speak, or the end of the known universe, and you go beyond that, it's what he's saying there, your glory is even beyond the realm of creation. See, we we dwell and live and have our being and, our, and the way our conscious minds work is, is, is all wrapped up in the finite understanding of created things, this created pulpit, this created book, this created jacket. It's, it's, it's tangible things that we understand, distances and numbers and measurements. But with God, he is not only the God who is majestic, in his name in all of the earth, but he goes, even if you go throughout the universe, his name is majestic. And as a matter of fact, even beyond that, to another realm, to, to that which creates existence rather than uh, is, is, uh, is above existence in some ways, you could say that. That's not a great description of it, but, but it might speak to some degree of what God is like, that he's beyond our capacity to understand his existence in its totality. He exists in a realm that's beyond our knowledge and our wisdom. Uh, one writer, his name is Peter Sandlin, writes it this way, God is not part of his creation. He is not even the most powerful part of his creation. We do not arrive at a satisfactory concept of God by uh, exploring from the extent of the power and the might of a, of a created thing. God's power is absolutely a, of a different kind, and, it filled the and, and he fills the universe with them. God's existence is radically other. And so the psalmist here is, is, is kind of leaping out of his skin and of his mind and his understanding. He's, he, he's going to realms of the, the grandeur and glory and uh, the huge reality of the infinite nature of God. And he's saying, even above the heavens, there's your glory. Above the knowledge we have of the heavens, the distance, these things. And, 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 and he's talking in this, this fact about the, 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 the God is is to be revered in these things, to be honored in these things, to be glorified in these things. And it's not just on the earth, but it's beyond our earthly capacity to understand things even above the heaven. The, the, the created realm is finite, but God is above the finite, and he's measureless. There, there is, this is going to be hard to describe, but if you were to point a place in the universe and say, now this is, this is where God is right now, and and maybe he's needed over here and that God has to traverse that distance. That's not a reality. That's not, that's not a way to explain God because God is uh, um, um, not only omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's everywhere at all times, omnipresent. And that omnipresence of God is, is that God is, is nowhere uh, centered in one place, but that he's always everywhere in all places. So he hasn't, doesn't have to travel to get from one place to another. When you're in trouble at night and you're crying out to God, he doesn't have to rend the heavens and come down because he's everywhere at all times in the created order and even beyond that into the infinite existence of the 
omnipresence of God everywhere he is. That's just a few words that a mere man like me try to, to wrap around our understanding of God. And as you can see, I struggle with these words because I can't really put tongue to the majesty of God, the splendor of God. David tries his best, and yet we all fall short. Uh, God is immeasurable, in, in, in some measures, undescribable, is, is infinite in uh, glory and splendor. And so he, he is just honoring God in ways that I hope we learn to, to honor God as well. One word sticks out here that I want to just comment on for a moment. It says, you have set, S-E-T, you have set your glory. Now this is, a, I think, a play on words because in the first few chapters he's talking about kings that are set in their rebellion against God or they have set themselves up against the Most High. And so it talks about this sense of being unmovable, uh, unflappable, unshakable. There's in their rebellion, but God in his glory now, if these thing, two things come into conflict with one another, who do you think is going to win? Where do you think the battle's going to going to wind up? It's going to be the victory that God will have, triumphing over triumphing over all of His enemies. And and so He, this is this is something that's set. It doesn't move up and down. There's not more glory sometimes and less. We might feel more emotions that might want to honor and glorify Him and worship Him, but the glory of God is set in its place, and it's undefeatable, and it is immeasurable. And then, now now this is going to really get strange here. Look at, and this is why I called uh, one of the possibilities for the sermon is babies versus Avengers, because all of a sudden he's talking about heavens and glory and majesty and splendor and God being above all of that, and then all of a sudden it seems like he just has like a uh, like he's going to write a whole nother book or a whole nother chapter. He, he just leaves that thought behind and now he's talking about something that seems completely opposite. You couldn't go from a higher height to a lower level here than, than a newborn babe. Out of the mouth, verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants. What about out of the mouth of babies and infants? And what does this have to do with your name being majestic in all the earth and you glory being set above the heavens? Well, th- it is not a change of thought. It is not a change of subject. It's not verse one is one sermon. Verse two, he's starting a whole nother message. No, this is, these are intricately related to one another and it's important that we continue to tie them together as God would have us to do. Because this out of the mouth of babes and infants, what happens out of the mouth of babes. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Three things that he talks about here. One is the enemies, the other is the foes, and the third is the avengers. And God is basically in a, in a, in a battle with uh, chapter two, kings, rulers, rulers of nations that rise up against God and his son, and they, they rage, the Bible says, they, Psalms 2 says, they rage against the Lord. And, 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 and we see this, this, this rage in here, and you have set your glory above the heavens. But out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Now, number one, I want to bring to your attention here. He, he says, this, these, are, these are your foes. Now, up till this point, chapters 1 through 7, he's kind of describing them slightly more, more often, at least certainly, describing them in ways that saying that these are my foes. God, come and help me, rescue me, because all these people are coming against me. These are my foes, and they're surrounding me. And, and God, would you come and defeat my enemies? Oh, I like what, he, what the transition he gives here. He goes, God, these, these are, I've realized something, and this is causing greater praise and higher praise to come out of my heart, that these are your enemies. This is your battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's not your battle what you're fighting right now, what you're wrestling with, what you're worried over, what stresses you, what causes anxiety in your heart, what causes heartburn physically to take place. It's not your battle. Lay it down. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. I want you to do that today. I want you to do that right now. Take this moment, even if you have to stop this video and say, God, I want to come before you and lay this down at the altar. I want to, I want to let it be just uh, consumed in the fire of God that these are your enemies and you know how to triumph over my enemies when I don't know how over your enemies you certainly know how to triumph as well and so the, classify all your enemies as God's uh, your, your disease your 
problems, your marriage, your circumstances, your finances. These, these, these are the, the enemies of God. They're, they're, they're yours, God. And, and then you, you're trusting him then to deal with it. You're not trusting in your own confidence. You're not resting in your own strength, your wisdom, your ingenuity, your cleverness. You're trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to deal with these things. Now, David knew, David in this new frame of mind isn't denying the fact that there are foes, enemies, or avengers. Some in the prosperity movement try to do that. There's no such thing as an enemy. We rebuke it and it's gone. We don't have foes. We don't have struggles. We don't have difficulties. Uh, those are just things that are tried to put upon us. And if we just claim it, they'll be gone. No, David doesn't do that. He faces the reality that they're there. What soldier, believing there's no enemy, goes to battle? How do we have spiritual warfare if there's no enemy? And so David is clear, and I believe that's under the instruction, the instruction of God and the Holy Spirit, that, that there is a battle that we're in. We're in the middle of a spiritual warfare. We are in the middle here in America in the hour that we live in. That this battle has intensified. The enemy, knowing his time is short, is showing the fangs of his fierce teeth like never before. And we're seeing the powers of the enemy almost being unleashed from the pits of hell in our nation, from the, from the political politics, into our school systems, into our neighborhoods, into all types of systems and structures, we see the, this reality of God's enemies that are coming up against him. But in his mind, in David's mind, he is now more aware of God's victories, of God's power, of God's delivering nature, of the resources of God, of the undefeatable nature of God. And so this shifts in his mind. It used to be his enemies were high and his faith was low and now his faith is high and his enemies are brought down to where really they belong as being uh, easily, that's a key word to this message, easily defeated when put in the right, cons uh, right precept, the right place, the right understanding, the right management, the right weapons of our warfare. <clears throat> then our enemies are reduced and eventually become nothing at all. And so out of the mouth of babes, you, you brought strength from this. Now, we're going to see three things in this chapter that God uses to destroy his enemies. Three things to bring down his foes. What does he use? You see, it's interesting. He, it, it seems like he would want to bring armies, angelic hosts, great weapons of warfare. You would think it would be the flaring rage of his nostrils, uh, that fire-breathing sword from heaven, riding that white horse, which one day that will be a reality. But in our, the setting we live right now, God delights in demonstrating his strength through things that are weak and small, things that we would think would be insignificant, things that we would say, that's not enough, it's not sufficient. And the first of these, of these three, is the, out of the mouths of babes, from, from infants, we see this, there's a word coming out of the mouth of babes that confounds the wise, that disturbs their plans. In, in a book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a story of a Scottish pastor, an evangelist, who, who would uh, refuse to stop preaching the gospel and its biblical truth. And the church of its day, the compromised uh, pagan church, really is what it was, uh, tried to get him to stop preaching, and he wouldn't, so they brought him to to be uh, martyred, on a, uh, burned at a stake, burned alive. And as he went to the stake, the, there was some, as I'm sure there would be for many of us, trembling in his heart. And one of the Pope's assistants yelled, yelled out at him that he was a heretic and that he was, he, he was preaching the devil's word. And the, the Fox's Book of Martyr, the history says, a little child, at the top of their voice, spoke out to that, to that wicked man who was burning the, the the godly man at the stake, and said, he, he's not of the devil because the words he speaks could not be spoken by the devil. They are the power of God. Spoken from a child. And it just, uh, and, and the story goes on to say that that man that was being burned at the stake just took courage and just had that, that sense of, of uh, boldness in going into the Lord's presence. And it confounded the, the wise around there. Those, they, it, it silenced their mouths. It silenced the false accusations. And it, and it brought a reproof to them through that mouth of the child. And that's what God's saying. I, I, I take little things and, and I make them my glory. This is found, uh, I, I, think, I find this phenomenal. M Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles 
if you're listening to this in your car, obviously, just listen to these words. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. It's, it's, it's quoted in the New Testament many times. We're going to look at just a few verses. And the first one here is, is Jesus using the same phrase that we're looking at in, in this verse, verse 2. Jesus says this to the, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. Have, uh, have you never read, and he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of uh, infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Speaking of his father preparing praise out of the mouth of babies. Well, what's happening here? Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 8? Well, we have to go back up to verse 12 to understand the context. In verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove. Remember, he took that, that cord of three, and he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is a, this is a, this is a violent intervention. God and his righteousness coming against all these impurities and these things that don't belong in the house of God. It's the vengeance of the Lord in some small measure, but in a real measure. In verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And so you see here, they were, they were all about their money changing, the money making, the, the religion of their day, so to speak. But Jesus was about healing, making it a place of prayer. What kind of prayer? Prayer for the lame, prayer for the sick, prayer for those who need healing, prayer for blind, prayer for people like you and I, when oftentimes we're spiritually blind or emotionally distraught or physically sick or in some form of crisis. That's what that house of prayer is meant to be. And, and Jesus was in that house of prayer praying. He wanted to clear that out so there could be prayer brought up on our behalf. And so as, as he's praying, he sees these miracles take place. And in verse 15, it says, when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the crying children out of the temple. Interesting. They saw wonderful things and the children praising him. Hosanna. They were saying this. Hosanna, the son of David. You would think the next words would be, and they were either rejoicing, maybe at worst case scenario, they were bewildered. Don't know, how to, don't know how to comprehend this. It's not registering correctly in my brain. I don't know what to do with this, this power of healing, t- taking what was going wrong in the temple and in an instant making it all right again, all glorious again, all majestic again. And, 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 but instead of saying that, it says, they were indignant and verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? You hear these, they're asking, do you hear what these babies are saying? These infants, these little toddlers, these children? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of these infants and these nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Interestingly enough, Jesus takes the exact words, but he changes, uh, I wouldn't say changes, but under, gives an understanding to it, gives reference to it in the reality. In, in chapter Eight of Psalm verse 2, it says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you've established strength for your foes. Why? To still the enemy and the avenger. What Jesus is saying here is that's taking place in their hearing. They're seeing it take place. These children are saying, look at what's happening in the temple. This is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. It's not about money. It's not about fame. It's not about popularity. It's not about success. It's not about personal achievement. Away with all that and clean that temple. Clean the temple of the church. Clean the temple of our hearts and be a people prepared for prayer. Be a people prepared now. Out of that prayer come signs and wonders, healings, gifts of the Spirit flowing through the body of Christ. And, and Jesus is saying, when, when, the, when the infants and the babies hear that, they begin to praise. And that praise is, is, is what causes the, the religious and the, and the false religious and the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to become indignant. What was it made them indignant? It, 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 it wasn't until the children started crying. It, it, they didn't seem to be quite as indignant. Uh, they were looking at the wonderful things that God was done, doing. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the children began to cry out, Hosanna, the son of David. And Jesus says this at the end. And instead of saying, you, you have established strength because of your foes, and the purpose of this is to still the enemy of the avenger, Jesus says, uh, out of the mouth of babes and nursing babies and infants, you have prepared praise. And th- this, is, this is so powerful and profound because what I believe Jesus is, is saying here, that's, it's, it's the mouth of praise that stills the enemies. 
It's the mouth of adoration of God. It's the exaltation of the heart, of the glories and the majesty. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. It's that type of praise in the mouth of simple people, not necessarily scholars, not necessarily great leaders, not necessarily wealthy people, but just the common folk like us, that out of our mouth comes praise and that praise begins to tear down the strength of the enemy. It begins to defeat our foes or God's foes as well. We see that praise, when lifted up, diminishes the place of Satan and his power. Why? Because he hates praise. If you're being bombarded by the powers of darkness, if you're hearing foul things in your mind, and you're rehearsing difficult things and doubt and fear and unbelief and lust and pride and arrogance. All kinds of things are just bombarding you. And you don't know how to deal with that. May I suggest to you today, do what Jesus is saying here about these infants and babes. Begin to praise the Lord. Praise makes the way for your victory. Praise through the battle and praise through to your victory that God has for you on the other side. Praise is our strength. Praise is our victory. Praise is our confidence. Praise is the thing that God has for us. And he does it through these small things. And the first one is through the mouth of babes. This, and, and God, I was doing a study on the omnipotence of God. And I, and I see in here how God loves to use small things to reveal the great power that he has, the power over his foes, his enemies, and the avengers, those who try to take vengeance on God's people for the, the acts of righteousness like Jesus did in cleansing the temple. And, and as I was looking at this, I, I came across this article and it said uh, that the largest ever nuclear explosions at, right after it took place, scientists began to dream and plan and plot for an even more powerful blast. They began to study and prepare how they could build a 10,000 megaton blast. That blast would be 670,000 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. This would be nothing at all, though, compared to the power of God over his enemies. No power on earth compares with the infinite power of God. But yet it is, interesting enough, how does that power, even in finite ways, understood? Well, it's understood in the fact that a single atom split can ignite a chain reaction with the explosive power to destroy cities and even nations. Listen to this, it is estimated that there is 10 to the 82nd power number of atoms known in the universe. Now that doesn't sound like that big a number, 10 to the 82nd power. That is 10 quadrillion vigitillion. I didn't even know there was a number called vigitillion, but a vigitillion is, is a one with 63 zeros after it. And if you were to write that number 10 quadrillion times on a whiteboard, one right after another, you would begin to see the vast amount. Now, when you think of that, these are small atomic particles, and there are this many, the, uh, an unfathomable number of these things. And yet, if you were to split one and there was a chain reaction, the, the, the blast of that would be even greater than the capacity of each atom would have in its own strength. So the number that, if you were to describe the power of that, would be even beyond the number that I just shared with you in this, this article. And God was is showing us even in an atomic level of his power of his power now do you think he would not have enough power to solve your problem you think he would not have enough resources to heal a broken heart do you think he would not have enough care and love an omnipotent power of love in his life to come to you and comfort you when you are in distress or in need when you think of this number 10 quadrillion vigitillion and knowing that God and those are inf those are finite numbers and God's power is infinite even beyond these to, to a measure we can't even describe. His love, his presence, his grace, his goodness is beyond measure. And it's interesting that he, he, he says here that, that, that uh, he uses the, the small things like these, these, these infants. And you see that throughout all of Scripture. David, who's writing this psalm, understands what it's like to be a small thing used mightily to demonstrate. Why use a small person like David, why not empower the army and give all of the Israelites' army the strength to come against the Philistines? Why use one small little boy to fight that? Well, God gets greater glory in showing that this is impossible with man, but it's, not, but it's possible with God. Nothing is impossible 
with God. And God loves, he revels in using the small things of the world of creation to confound the wise, to defeat the enemy. And that's good news for you and I because he can use you and he can use me to bring down the powers of darkness that are raging and ravaging the world today, that you are an instrument in God's hand to, uh, even as a, a little child, a young teen like David, to bring down giants that are in our land today. David was one. Moses was another, a stuttering fugitive, and he's called upon to be empowered, be an instrument of rescue of Israel from 400 years of bondage and slavery. And as God is doing his marvelous task, look how he does, how does he free Israel from Egypt? Not through armies, not through, through, through massive things, but God demonstrates his great power in small elements that have huge results. When you think of the plagues, what did it consist of? Oftentimes it was little locusts brought together in mass to decimate crops, or little tiny frogs hopping around, but together they became unbearable for the, for the, for the Egyptians. Why did God send lice and flies uh, instead of thousands of ferocious lions or stampeding elephants that would destroy huge buildings in Egypt? Why did he use hail instead of crashing monstrous asteroids? Because God loves to use small things not only to confound the so-called great, but to take the humble and make the proud immensely re reduced through them. Uh, one, one last thing, I just get so thrilled when I begin to talk about God using small things. I think because I consider myself a small thing. These things, um, when you think of it, uh, the, the book of Proverbs says, consider the ant. Uh, these little bugs are one of the most common insects in the world. There's an is estimated one quadrillion of these tiny little bugs around the world. Uh, and one small part of the ant, its neck, okay? One tiny part of a tiny uh, insect, the ant, its neck can hold 5,000 times its own weight. And uh, if we scaled that in human terms, it'd be like you and I carrying 750,000 pounds. Now I do a workout called CrossFit and, and if I can get a couple hundred pounds over my head, I'm feeling really good. But could you imagine 750, pounds, 5,000 times your weight. And now listen to this. It, when you put that weight upon that ant, if we scaled the speed at which the ant is carrying it to a human speed, uh, carrying 750,000 pounds, it would be like carrying that weight running at 52 miles an hour, far faster than any human can run. Now the ant looks slow, and he doesn't look like he's carrying much, but when you scale it, it's, it's showing what God does through small things. We, we, we see his power 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, this is the perfect way I want to do this. It's in weakness. You feel in, un, unable, incapable, uh, un, un, unable. Well, you're in the right position. You're, you're right in the place where God wants you to be, to use you mightily to overcome the obstacles in your life and bless others who are facing difficulties as well. Let's continue on in, into verse 3. Well, we see here in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And the second thing we see here is in the next verse, what is man that you are mindful of him? We, we see here that, that God is, is looking at man and saying, you know, ju just like the infant, uh, now here's the man. Maybe he's a fully grown man now. Uh, maybe he's mature and he has muscles, but he's still saying, when I look at the heavens, when I, look at, look, when I look at the stars, when I look at uh, all of creation, the, uh, why would you pick a little guy like me to care for? Number one, to care for, and number two, to use to have dominion over all these things you've just suggested, these 12 things, these questions that the, that, that the Jews asked. And, 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 and we see here him, him saying, when I, when I consider that you have set the moon here and the stars there, and you've set them in their places. If you don't mind me sharing a few more uh, illustrations here, is when, when David is speaking of this universe, he had no understanding compared to what we have today with the Hubble telescope and other resources that we have at our disposal. But it's, it's saying that the part of the universe that we can see through the greatest uh, exploration and massive telescopes, it's estimated to span 93 billion, 93 billion light years and there are between 120 and 320, here's another word I didn't know, 120 and 320 sextillion stars. 
there are 500 billion galaxies, each with billions of stars, and each with innumerable atoms within those stars, each of them their own created element. And it's in that that David is saying how majestic and how much glory your name is. When, when, when I consider the stars and the, the work of your hands, I'm overwhelmed, I'm flabbergasted by that, and to know that you're greater than all of this. Now, if you look at the science of this, there's something else I think that's very phenomenal. If you measure the the, the, the height of a normal human body, five, uh, near six, nearly six foot for a man, when, when you measure that, the distance between my six foot body and the farthest regions of the galaxy, this, this 93 billion light years away, so my body, six foot, compared to 93 billion light years, is the exact equal distance between the six foot body that I have and the smallest element within inside of my body. In other words, the, the minuscule nature of the things that God saw in his creation is so, so minuscule that inside of my body, that thing is, is equal to the 93 billion light years away. So, and strangely enough, if that is accurate as science says it is, then man is right in the middle. He, he's not as low as the smallest things and he's not as high as the furthest regions, but he's right in the center of this. And that's what David is questioning. You put man in the middle of all this? You gave man dominion over all this? You, you put this there for us? This is, this is for our care? This is for our dominion? And that's where he begins to ask these questions about, about what God has done. And so we see himself saying that part of your way of overcoming your enemies is using these small things as infants and babies and mere man. What, what, why are you mindful of us? And, and then the last thing we see is, is that the, in verse 3, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, and I would suggest to you the third thing that God says, and, and we can't say God's fingers are small because God really doesn't have any actual body parts. If he did, then he'd be measurable. His hand is this big and his eyes are over here. He is everywhere at all times. And so he uses these phrases about him seeing or hearing uh, with the ears or speaking with his mouth. He's using them figuratively so we could uh, relate to him, so to speak. Uh, but in reality, he's much greater than all of that. But he's asking, uh, and so he's describing this, that, that all of these things, this 93 billion light years and all these stars, and he's saying to David, David uh, and all of us who read this passage, uh, that's, I just did that with my fingertips. Could you imagine I put my strong right arm and my left arm together and, I, and I, I went all out on this? Or could you imagine if I just used my, my whole mind or my, my whole body, if I put all of that I have in it? No, I just, what, what you see is just the, from the fingertips. It's just the, it's just the potter at a wheel. It's, it's not the, the man creating a, a mansion. It's just the potter at the wheel. You're just, and again, so God's showing just, just small parts of who I am is sufficient for you. You don't know all of me. You don't know all my power. You don't know all my glory. You don't know all my majesty. But what you do know me is sufficient enough to meet every need that you have, every cry of your soul, every care of your heart, every problem you've ever faced, every desire of your heart, every dream that you've ever had, every ambition that he's put in your heart. God is big enough, sufficient enough, majestic enough, and glorious enough to accomplish all the purposes that he has. And so these questions now that the, the, that the rabbis asked are becoming back to us, a resounding yes. Yes, God, you put us over these things. You've shown your glory through these things. And, and, and even in, in babes, and even in man, and even just through your fingertips, you're showing us your dominion, your power over all these elements of the world today. Let me close in this last few verses mm. uh, because the question I come up with here is the uh, verse five, you made him lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given dominion to work of his hands and you've put all things under his feet. Is he talking about David? Is he talking about Adam and his children, Abraham and his children? Or is he talking about Jesus? And many commentaries uh, debate this back and forth. But it's interesting that th these, these verses about what is placed under his feet, under his dominion, is echoed many times in the New Testament. Very briefly, I want to touch on just a few of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection from the dead. That's speaking of Christ. Verse 22. As in Adam all die, also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now in Adam, he was the man that Psalms was talking about who should have been the one who had dominion over all these things. He should have the dominion of life, the dominion of giving life, the dominion of ruling over life. <clears throat> but that dominion was diminished and Satan began to become what uh, John calls the, the, the God, small g, the God of this age or the, the, the ruler of the air is what Jesus described him to be. And so you see there's the shift here now that this dominion, everything under his feet that man was meant to have, now Satan is, 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 is uh, dragging that away into his own rule and his own dominion. Uh, and, and even to the point of bringing death on the earth, for as Adam all die, so in Christ shall be all made alive. You see something happening, or Christ is stealing back what was stolen, rescuing, redeeming, buying back, if you will, not from Satan, but, but from the righteousness of God. But each to his own order. Christ the first fruits, then those coming who belong to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and power and authority. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. There you go, there's Psalms 8, putting all the enemies under his feet. Helping us answer the question, is Psalm 8 talking about us or Jesus? And in reality, it's talking about both. It's talking about the position that we were meant to have of rule and reign and righteousness, and we abdicated that throne, so to speak. Not that we were on the throne, Jesus and God has always been, but, but a co-heir with him in ruling and reigning. And, and, and we lost the fullness of that understanding and that power and that dominion. And here we see Jesus now taking back rule, taking back authority, gaining it uh, fully. Uh, not that he'd ever lost sovereignty by any means at, at all, but he's crushing now what, was, uh, what the thief came to kill, steal, and destroy. He's destroying death. He's destroying theft. He's destroying destruction. He's coming against all the works of the enemy. And he does this until he puts all enemies under his feet. 26, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet all things in subjection under his feet. It's, it's the dominion of Christ. It's the reign of Christ that is, 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 is a victory. And we get to be co-heirs with him now. He has brought us into his family. He's the head and we are the body. And so when he has dominion, we are ruling and reigning with him. Not fully now, but that's not till eternity, but uh, in, 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 a, in a way and in a fashion now we're seeing ourselves positioned with Christ to be able to have power and authority over the realms of darkness in our life and in society around us. Look at two more verses real quickly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. Verse 18 says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, and I pray that's what this message is doing today, that you may know what is the hope, and I pray that's what you're receiving today, to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's what I'm talking about. He's given us back an inheritance now. It, it's something that the enemy tried to rob, steal, kill, and destroy from us. And now Satan uh, is, is, is being crushed, and God is using small things. He's using just his fingertips. He's using man. He's using infants. Uh, and most of all, we see here in these texts, it's not just those things, but he's using the cross of Jesus Christ. He's using the work of one who humbled himself, could, could we say became smaller in a sense, certainly in size, uh, taking on the form of a man, not having a form of a man before, uh, but, but now uh, uh, in that human body. And, and, and we see him using that to be in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? He's working his great might in small vessels that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Do you see uh, the extensive nature of the dominion and power of God, how all things are truly under his feet, how he does rule, how he does reign, how he is sovereign, how he has dominion over all things, uh, not only in this age, but in the one to come. In verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. There's Psalm 8 again put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things. Now, that's what I'm saying. We're in the body. And so his headship is, is leading a triumphant victory over the powers of darkness, and we get to be a, uh, a, have a role in that uh, power that God is working on the earth today. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills 
all in all. I think that speaks for itself. And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, is the quoting again, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm chapter 8. There must be something really significant about Psalm 8 to be so instrumental and so uh, central to much of the gospel in the New Testament. Verse 5, chapter 2 of Hebrews. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It was testified somewhere. What is man that you were mindful of him? Sound familiar? There's Psalm 8 again. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, uh, he left nothing outside his control. I just want to comment on this briefly. I've been hearing more and more in uh, evangelical churches today a teaching that says God is sovereign, but he's not in control. One of the largest music ministries that uh, put music out across the nation, uh, its, its pastor speaks of this. That, and, and literally, you could look up his sermons and say, God is not in control. Sure, he's sovereign, but he doesn't control things. Well, I can't understand that when the scripture says here, this is not my theology, he left nothing outside his control. It doesn't say he left anything out, just, just his sovereignty, but not his control. God is not only sovereign, he's in control. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to defeat the enemy. He knows the objectives and the plans of the enemy. And he actually allows those and uses those for his greater glory, his greater good in demolishing those things and bringing them to nothing. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who was, a, who was, listen to this, for a little while, going back to Psalm 8, you've made him lower than the, than the heavenly beings, than the angels. And it just says, just for a little while. And, and not even in divine form, just in this human form, a little lower. Uh, he couldn't, or he could, but, it, but he didn't fly around. And he didn't, uh, he didn't use all of his angelic powers. He, 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 he purposely uh, allowed himself to, to, to not put those things to full use that he could have. Uh, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely, uh, who are they speaking of? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The last thing I would suggest to you is, is simply that, that through a small wooden cross, the powers of darkness were defeated. Yes, through the mouth of infants and babes. Yes, through the fingers of God. Yes, through the, through the, 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 the man that you are mindful of. But most importantly, most powerfully, the thing that brought subjection, the thing that brought dominion, the thing that brought control, the thing that raised up Jesus higher than any angel. He's, he's higher by that because to no angel did the Father say, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is exalted through this small thing, this small wooden Roman cross on a small hill called Cal Galgotha. And in that place, the small spear placed in his side and a small whip on his back and a small crown of thorns placed upon his head. But each one of those things had huge implications for you and I because God chose to use small things to destroy the power of things that seem huge, seem overwhelming, seem too far beyond our ability to have any, any power or dominion over them. And God's saying, look what I can do through babies. Look what I can do through mere men. Look what I can do through just the fingertips that I have. And most of all, Look what I can do through a cross because it was on that cross. Uh, look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was through this thing of suffering, uh, a small season of Jesus' life, 33 years of his existence, 33 years and then three years of ministry and then three days of, 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 of this, this season of crucifixion and rejection of man and the being beaten and being on trial and being put to death and then raised again from the dead, that, that that suffering was working for this greater glory that God is triumphing over our enemies. The cross puts to death the powers of darkness. And we need to come to the cross daily and say, Jesus, it's this cross. What, what is my hope? What is my life? What, what, is, what, what is the cure for anxiety, stress, worry, doubt, fear, lust, pride, selfishness, rebellion, rejection, lukewarmness, uh, de spiritual declension. What is the remedy to that? It's to look back to the cross and say, this is where my dominion is won. This is where God's dominion in my life over my enemies, over his enemies in my life. This is where the battle has been fought. This, this is the pinnacle of the battle. This is the, 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 the realm of where the enemy was truly defeated was at that foot of the cross where Jesus laid his life down for you and I. Trust the cross. 
Trust the resurrection. Trust the power of the gospel that says Christ has delivered us from the powers of the evil one, from darkness. He has destroyed his works and he's destroying his works. He's delivering you. He has delivered you and he will continue to deliver you. Today, my friends, have hope, have confidence, have boldness to come into that throne room of grace and say, because of the cross, I have access to the Father now and I can ask whatever I want. Lord, what I'm asking is your enemies would be defeated, your foes. And Lord, even if you would, let this mere man, what are you mind, how would you be mindful of me? I'm like a babe with an infant, not even know how to speak the right words. How would you use me? But God chooses through the cross to use people who would be crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, Galatians says, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives with me. And the life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that I might be triumphant and victorious, not in my own works, but through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's you. That's your promise. That's your hope. And I want to pray for you in closing. Father, give hope. Bring, bring life to death. Bring triumph to tragedy. Bring victory to, to, to those who have been victims of Satan's abuses. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus, God, that you'd set captives free, that you'd deliver hearts from worry and anxiety and stress and fear and doubt. These enemies that are uh, abound around us and even the enemies within us, Lord, that you would, you would come and subject those things to your authority and that we would live righteous and holy and pure and we'd be victorious over those things that would come against us, the temptations, the powers of darkness, the realms of evil. And Lord, not only would we do it in our own life, but God, we'd be agents of your glory and your majesty and your splendor and your love, the demonstration of your power. Lord, demonstrate your power through us, small churches, small vessels, small people, small words, small sermons like this one that you can use for your greater glory. And we give thanks for that. In Jesus' precious name, I say amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with me today. Continue with our series. We're looking forward to some great weeks ahead. God bless you.